everyone, I'm Brandon Odo. And I'm Brian Bowling. And this is Critical Care Scenarios, the podcast where we use clinical cases, narrative storytelling, and expert guests to unpack how critical care is practiced in the real world. All right, everyone, welcome back. Um, I am Brandon, back here with Brian. And we have a guest for you, and it's a guest you've seen before. We are back here with one of our favorite people, Matt Shuba, um, Cleveland Clinic intensivist to the stars. And we wanted to take a look today at kind of a, a general concept more than a disease, which is the idea of complications. Complications meaning things that sort of tend to result from things we do to patients and or things that um, you might say they go wrong. Uh, untoward sequela of medical care and uh, unexpected or at least undesired um, sort of directions that things go in the ICU. And um, you guys know Matt is sort of Mr. Zentensivist, all about doing less and streamlining our care. And I, I think this this goes into that, um, avoiding and really ideally preventing problems before they occur. Uh, I think we'd probably all agree is is better than trying to treat them. We're, we're getting pretty clever at some aspects of medicine, but in pretty much every case, once you have to start cleaning up a mess, it's uh, at best not as effective as if you'd prevented it in the first place. So welcome back, Matt. Thanks, Brandon. I'm happy to be here with you guys again. This is a neat idea for a topic. Yeah. So I think Brian's going to walk us through a few little cases. Hey, yeah, so we're going to do a couple of like little mini cases today. Uh, again, looking not so much to deal with the specific problems, although these are definitely problems that come up in the ICU, but thinking more of them as complications. So it's not quite so important why the patient's in the ICU, just that something's happened and how do we deal with it? And then maybe even if we can kind of put the time machine on to go back and how could we have prevented it from happening in the first place? So the first one is what I think is probably one of the most common complications that I see in, in our ICUs. You have a 75 year old female and she's been admitted to the ICU. Again, it doesn't really matter why, but we'll say for the sake of discussion, uh, acute ischemic stroke, she's doing well. You, you see her on rounds. Um, and you move on to other things. And then a little bit later, you get a call from the nurse that says she's suddenly tachycardic up to 140. So what's the first thing that you want to do? Well, that's a great question. The first thing I think we need to figure out, uh, the stability of the patient, uh, outside of the heart rate, um, how do they look clinically, blood pressure, um, any other changes. And then of course, what, what the actual rhythm is. Yeah, so luckily, this lady has an arterial line, so you have a really good, accurate blood pressure. And and she's a little hypotensive, but not bad. I mean, MAP's still above 60. It just dropped a little from where she was previously. And you get a rhythm strip, and it looks like, to your eye, like AFib. Gotcha. And uh, so now I think the next step is... Uh you know, on theme with the episode, is there anything, you know, this, this is a symptom. It is not a diagnosis. Uh, so we have to figure out why the heck this is happening. So this is a good time to look at most recent labs for electrolytes and blood counts and fluid balance and things like that. 
Yeah, okay. So she doesn't have any kind of history of arrhythmias that you're aware of, but uh, she did her AM labs looked okay. Um, her potassium was a little on the low end, but, but you know, not bad. It's not uh, a low end of normal. Uh, mag was a little low as well. She did get diureased earlier today, uh, and you haven't had any labs since like two o'clock this morning. All right. So I think this is, uh, we're still kind of in a little bit of murky waters here. I think did the diuresis precipitate hypovolemia? Doesn't happen all that often, but it does happen sometimes. Um, so that's a possibility of something we did. I guess now is the time to go back in time and ask why we gave the diuretic in the first place. Sure. So she was um, a little bit positive, a couple liters positive for her stay, and um, was requiring you know some semi-high levels of oxygen, six liters per nasal cannula. Gotcha. So... Sounds like a reasonable uh, reasonable thing to do in that instance. Um, hopefully it was supported with some sort of collateral information, imaging, ultrasound, or, or chest x-ray or something. To, yeah, to her chest that. x-ray looked a little wet. Okay, so, so pretty defensible action. Uh, this patient had an echo yet? She has not. Okay, so I guess we also don't know. We've got somebody with an acute ischemic stroke who's an AFib. Uh, now, maybe it's not as new as we thought it was, and, and that may have been what precipitated this uh, this stay, actually. Um, so, I mean, it would be interesting to know what's going on with her heart structurally. Um, but, you know, based on the theme of this podcast, I'm trying to scan the horizon here for uh, what what we did to, to create the circumstance. Um, and I'm, I'm puzzled a little bit at the moment. Now would be a good time to try to gather some collateral data. Um, see, I, I think, you know, I, I would at least do a, a point of care test, uh, ultrasound just to see, uh, try to get an idea of what the, how the heart looks structurally, how the function looks. And then, um, for whatever it's worth, uh, try to get estimate filling pressures, uh, particularly like, uh, right-sided filling pressures by looking at the IVC, just to kind of get an idea of where I'm starting from. Sure. So you grab the probe and take a look at her and you know, everything looks fairly normal. She does look a little bit on the empty side. Um, but structurally everything looks, you know, basically normal to just a quick look. Do you feel that it is, uh, it is fruitful usually to do an echo in the setting of AFib, especially rapid? Um, cause I tend to feel like the heart is just kind of, uh, not very cooperative, especially the faster yeah. it is. Um, but, you know, also being irregular, you know, every beat is different. Um, yeah. I mean, all you can do if you're trying to measure things or even eyeball them is, is sort of average it over many beats, but it definitely seems a lot rougher. Yeah, it's definitely harder. And there's a lot of things that you frankly can't measure. Um, like, especially if you want to look at left-sided filling pressures, forget about it. Um, that's not going to happen. Um, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm just a little, I'm trying to still figure out what the precipitant for this insult was. I don't know if this is, this patient's developing a new infection. If this patient has, you know, um, hypovolemia, um, it doesn't sound like the electrolytes are the problem. Um, you know, you can kind of, you know, run down the list here. I guess one thing is, um, how, how long has the patient been in the ICU and how many catheters do we have in this patient? Aside from uh, the outline. Yeah. So she's, she's been in, this is we'll say hospital day two. Um, she has an arterial line. She has a Foley. She has some peripherals. Gotcha. Oh, and she has a Dobhoff tube because she can't swallow. So I think the next thing is to, uh, I mean, it's, it's kind of early to get a hospital acquired condition from any of those, uh, catheters, but I certainly starting to think about, um, so I, I guess what to step back and say the thing that I haven't quite said yet is, um, 
I'm not sure that I necessarily want to directly treat this heart rate or not yet because I'm not sure if it's a symptom or if it's the problem. But if the heart looks kind of structurally normal, I doubt that treating the heart rate is going to fix everything. So I'm trying to find out, uh, you know, this is a patient who classically gets a push of metoprolol or a diltiazem and then they're on pressors all of a sudden. So I'm trying to avoid that situation. It sounds like I've got a reasonably stable patient. I've got some time to figure things out. Um, it would be reasonable to think about infection. Um, I, I guess I would be thinking more about the uh, urinary infection or aspiration given the clinical history uh, than like a bloodstream infection based on the catheters I have in place. But those are things that I'm worried about at this point. So I'd probably start chasing uh, some of that uh, infectious uh, work up there, at least at least with a UA and, and maybe re-X-raying the patient. Okay. At what point do you, are you concerned about a rate and, and looking for at least a rate control? Yeah. So I think it's, I, I think at some point, uh, so, so the biggest thing, obviously I don't want her to stay at 140 for forever here. Um, but, but I have some time, I'm not going to leave her in it for a whole shift or a whole day, but I've got some time to gather some information. Um, I'm kind of, you know, somebody with a stable blood pressure, you know, she's a little more hypotensive than she was before. So that makes me think she may not tolerate, uh, like uh, direct rate control. So this is somebody I might, or like uh, I should say a negative inotropic agent. So this is somebody I might try empirically to give mag to, you know, two to four uh, grams over an hour or two. And sometimes that'll be enough to slow you down a little bit. Um, if that's not the, if that's not working, I think you could consider a small push of a beta blocker, but then think you have to be ready to um, react to the hypotension that may result from treating it. How would uh, your approach to any of this differ in a patient who was known to have AFib previously um, and or I guess was on some sort of agents for that at home, beta blockers, calcium channel blockers or whatever? Yeah, so I, I guess in this case, I'm not so convinced that this patient doesn't have a history of it based on the clinical history. I mean, it could be a new onset. Um, I think I'd make sure that they're on whatever, uh, if they were already on rate control at home and um, they have the, they, they did previously have the hemodynamics to uh, tolerate those agents. I, I don't see any reason why they wouldn't be continued, but I could certainly see this would be a patient whose home meds were held when they came uh, to the um, ICU, especially considering the, you know, the goal of permissive hypertension after an ischemic stroke. So this would be a time if they were on a home agent to reintroduce it if it was being held either because of NPO status or because of the initial, um, you know, permissive hypertension period. Does it uh, trouble you at all thinking about the possibility of converting them? Yeah, it's a, it's a fair point, especially in somebody with a fresh stroke. I guess, um, how do we treat the stroke? Did they get TPA or they? Uh, she did get TPA. Okay. So, I mean, I guess she could have some tiny little clots floating around somewhere, but maybe the burden would be less now that she's been lysed. But uh, I don't know. I, I try not to overthink the cardioversion issue um, in terms of like, what if I give them amiodarone and all of a sudden they're in sinus? Um, obviously, the stroke risk is there. But when I think about stroke risks in a patient with AFib, I'm thinking about it on a year-to-year -year basis and not a day-to-day -day basis. It just kind of depends on how quickly I think, you know, first of all, do I think restoration of sinus rhythm in the acute setting is going to be helpful? Um, most of the time, the answer is no, unless they have a really structurally abnormal heart, like a really bad RV or really bad LV or aortic stenosis. Um, but in somebody that, you know, I think the way that I would, uh, classify it is what ha what do I need to cardiovert this patient? And the answer is almost no, always no. The other side is what if I accidentally cardiovert this patient? 
I really try not to overthink that because I think the odds of something happening acutely are pretty low, um, you know, within the, that time frame. Uh, if I really feel like I need to cardiovert them, I think I've decided that the risk of that uh, is outweighed by the benefit of uh, hemodynamic uh, coherence. So when you look into it, you find that she is on a little metoprolol at home, supposedly for her blood pressure. Um, and that was held initially first because she was slightly dysphagic and wasn't able to swallow and then can't, couldn't get a Dobhoff tube placed for the first 24 hours after TPA. Um, and then it hasn't been restarted simply because she hasn't needed it. We've been allowing her to be permissively hypertensive, but her systolics have been in the, you know, 160 to 170 range. Gotcha. Yeah. So I think with, with that in mind, it'd be, this would be easy patient to, to restart on and even consider giving a push on, cause we might be dealing with withdrawal, uh, you know, beta blocker withdrawal at this point. The other thing to consider is, uh, I mean, I, I probably would have held the metoprolol initially as well, but you know, metoprolol is a pretty crappy antihypertensive, so it probably wasn't going to hurt your efforts too much to allow permissive hypertension, uh, to occur. All right. You mentioned giving some mag. You said, uh, I, I think you said a couple of grams. You might give a couple of grams prophylactically. Do you do you just give that to someone in AFib without uh, testing new levels? Or would her AM labs bear any mind? And Yeah, that's a good question. I, for me, you know, this is like all the, there's just a new review that came out about treating AFib uh with rapid rates in the ICU. And basically the conclusion was we don't know much about anything that we're doing. Um, but we do know it probably doesn't make sense to anticoagulate people. That was kind of like the, the, the headline of that, uh, review article. Um, so with that in mind, this is like ev all evidence sparse zone, um, with somebody with that, I think can excrete magnesium in a reasonable time period. Like they're, they have, you know, reasonable kidney function. Um, which is probably most people that don't have ESRD or like really severe, you know, stage five CKD or something. Um, I'll probably just give it to them empirically without knowing what the level is. Um, the only way that the level would help me is if it's very low, then I'll probably give them a lot more than my empiric, you know, two to four grams. Um, but I, I do find this anecdotally, I'll say, I find this approach pretty effective, at least to get me out of like the one forties range. It's maybe, it's probably not going to, it's probably not going to cardiovert them to sinus. It's probably not going to bring them down to 80, but you know, it's something that at least, uh, take, let's say at least take the edge off of what's going on without being a myocardial depressant, um, to the effect like that an AV nodal acting agent would be. All right. When you look at her AM labs, you realize actually she didn't get a magnesium level this morning. Uh, she just got a regular CBC and a BMP, which doesn't unfortunately include mag. So you, you know, you give her a couple of grams of mag, you send a level, and it comes back 1.2. So you mentioned if it's very low, you'd give more than your empiric two to four grams. What uh, What's very low? Yeah, so that's definitely very low. I think generally when I get less than, you know, again, this is all a judgment call. Less than 1.6 for me, I'm starting to think about, you know, six to eight grams of mag. And then, you know, mag sulfate, uh, higher the, the higher the rate of infusion, the higher likelihood that they're going to excrete more in the urine. So if you're actually trying, so when I, when I give, mag to somebody for AFib, I don't care if I'm going to give it to them fast and they'll piece some of it out. Usually I get my effect pretty quickly, but in somebody like this, that has pretty severe hypomagnesemia and is going to require uh, a lot of replacement to, to hopefully mitigate this happening again. Um, then I think, you know, you have to run it, you have to run a, a much larger dose and over a longer period of time. So maybe you stretch it out over, you know, it's almost like you're running a mag drip over, you know, X number of hours. 
uh, just because of how, how much urinary excretion can happen with rapid infusions. All right. Um, you also mentioned that uh, because this lady is hemodynamically stable, you weren't too worried about um, you know getting her converted. What about her blood pressure? How low do you let it go before you consider her to be unstable? Yeah. Um, so I think unstable would be symptomatic hypotension. So that could happen at your typical, you know, MAP goals that you would use in the ICU, or it could happen sooner if this person's really chronically hypertensive. Um, and unstable for me in the ICU means I'm going to start vasopressors. It doesn't mean I'm going to cardiovert them again, most of the time, unless they have a really structurally abnormal heart and atrial kick is the only thing keeping them alive. Uh, which again, it's very, and, and at least in my setting, a medical ICU, even though I take care of people with sick, uh, chronically sick hearts, uh, I, it's not something I really jump to unless I really think the rate is the problem and I can't do anything about it by any other means. Okay. So even a rate control only strategy, not necessarily trying to convert them back to sinus, but just slow them down. Yeah. So in, in that case, I think usually if you, um, if you can go some go some way to eliminating the precipitant, sometimes the hypotension is the precipitant for the rapid rate. Um, so sometimes just restoration of the blood pressure um, will will account for the the rate being too high. Now, when you just when you say then what's the, what's too high of a rate? Uh, that's really contextually dependent. Uh, I start to think about it when I'm above 130. Um, certainly into the 140s and 150s, I'm like, okay, I probably need to do something about this because at the minimum, I'm in, uh, impairing diastolic filling and uh, and coronary uh, perfusion as well. I had a case recently that um, kind of highlighted this. I had a, a pretty young person who was in who had a rapid rate that initially looked like sinus attack, uh, but retrospectively was SVT, and it was just kind of hard to tell at the at the at the moment. It was the rate was like 160, and uh, to spare the details of how much of vasoconstrictors we were on, we were on basically all of the vasoconstrictors in the hospital, and then finally we made an attempt to control the rate. And this kid had a structurally this young man had a structurally normal heart, um, and was confirmed during shock with another echo. Um, so. We finally gave an agent for rate control in this case, and when his, uh, you know, retrospectively recognized SVT broke from 160 down to 90, his map went from 55 to 90. So even people that you're not necessarily suspecting it, and sometimes it can uh, play a role once you get that rapid, uh, especially in this 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 uh, patient had septic shock, was kind of leaky, was hard to keep uh, his preload uh, inside of his blood vessels. Um, so I think that diastolic filling time actually ended up being really important for somebody who wouldn't have thought it was important. And um, as we get older, that time, you know, as our heart stiffens, we get older, that time, uh, diastolic filling time and coronary filling time probably gets a lot more important. But even in young people in extreme circumstances, it can be a, the problem in addition to what else is going on. Okay. I think we've pretty much covered the treatment. And I, and I think mostly we've covered the prevention stuff here, but is there anything else that you would think of in this case that you would do going back in time to sort of prevent this from happening to begin with? You know, I think, uh, med med medication reconciliation is really important, especially once you get out of the acute phase here. So I think making sure that you resume the beta blocker, um, soon, you know, as soon as it was appropriate to do so, I think we all lose track of that once we're like, okay, I'm trying to move this patient along the line to getting better. I'm not necessarily thinking about those aspects of the big picture. And that's where like pharmacists really bail us out a lot of the time. 
Um, they're like, hey, you know, this patient hasn't gotten their three uh, psychotropic medicines in the last week. I wonder if that's why they're delirious. I'm like, oh, that's a fair point. I didn't think about that. Um, so I think that that is an important piece of prevention. I'm not like a person who wants to like, let's make all the lab, you know, as, as hopefully is, is uh, evident with the kind of things that I like to talk about. I'm not the type of person that tries to make all the labs pretty. Um, but certainly if you have extremes of uh, electrolyte derangement, I think it's prudent to get on top of it. You know, if you're, you know, I don't get excited about a K of 3.4, but if it's 2.9, I'm like, oh yeah, I probably should do something about that. Similarly with the mag, the lower it is, the, the, the more likely it's going to result in something significant. So I think those are kind of the two major issues. But the thing that I just want to impress upon everybody once again uh, is that, you know, we have time. We have time to figure this out when somebody's not unstable. So don't rush to don't reflexively give a medication just because it's like, oh, it's AFib. And normally in this situation, I give metoprolol. Like, just think about it for a hot second before you you jump to your next move, when, especially when you have the time. Yeah, that's a good point. So with electrolytes, with magnesium in particular, um, do you have a target in mind that you like to keep patients above? And does that differ if someone has a known, say, AFib? You know, the, the data on this is really uh, weak uh, overall. And, you know, you'll see in every, there's a note on probably one out of every three patients you're taking care of right now that says keep the K above four and keep the mag above two, um, which I think is mostly dogmatic. Uh, so again, I think, I try to stay out of the extremes. Uh, so if, if my K is getting close to three, then I, I'm a little bit more aggressive about repleting it. If the mag is, uh, you know, mag is under two, it's probably okay. But if you think somebody is at risk for symptomatic uh, hypomagnesemia, whether it's an arrhythmia or a gut issue or something, then I think it's prudent to, to stay up on it. The one case where I will say I'm a little bit more aggressive about electrolyte uh, monitoring and replacement is if I'm actively diuresing somebody, because um, active for me is like I'm giving two to four doses of Lasix a day, um, then I think it's prudent to watch the electrolytes and stay on top of them, either prophylactic or either preemptively starting a uh, potassium sparing diuretic or putting them on some scheduled uh, potassium. The caveat with those things is you have to make sure that if you stop the diuretic, you stop those because you probably stopped them because the renal function is uh, maybe not going the direction you were hoping. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, so do you do you check and replace your electrolytes yourself or do you have uh, like a standing sliding scale order? At, at one of the hospitals that I work at, uh, we have the uh, replacement protocol, which is used and used, so usually I don't have to think about it too much. Um, uh, in the regional hospitals where I work, there's not a protocol, so we do it manually. The thing to keep in mind though, is, uh, at some point, even if you have a replacement protocol, the patient's going to leave the ICU. And if you leave the, uh, you know, if, if you leave them on the diuretic dosing you're on and they're not getting automatic replacement, you have to have a plan because they're, I don't think most medical, I don't, I could be wrong about this, but I don't think most medical floors have the replacement protocol. So then you could end up really falling behind and it'd be really embarrassing to have to admit somebody back to the unit three days later because their K is 2.8 or something like that. All right. So you give her some mag, you restart her metoprolol, you get her better rate controlled, uh, and we can, we can leave uh, for further investigation into cardioverting her back to normal sinus for a later time. And so you move on, you uh, start going through the unit looking at some other folks. And you go to see a, uh, a gentleman, he's a 67-year-old, who was admitted to the ICU several days ago 
for acute respiratory failure. Um, the etiology is still unclear, uh, but you notice on his chest x-ray this morning that he's got a pretty large left-sided effusion. He's requiring fairly high amounts of oxygen, 70 and 80% of FiO2, uh, 8 to 10 of PEEP. And you're not able to really wean him much from the ventilator. And his effusion's not really changing despite your aggressive diuresis. Um, you look at it with the ultrasound and you see a big pocket of fluid that is just begging to be tapped. So you decide you do a thoracentesis on this guy, uh, thinking maybe get that fluid off and it'll help your, help your vent weaning efforts. So I guess start with walking us through what, how do you do a, a thoracentesis and does it matter to you a left-sided versus right-sided? I think I'll start with the, I have not thought about if it matters to me if it's left-sided or right-sided before. So maybe you guys will teach me about something, but I don't normally take that into consideration. Um, I think there's two aspects to this uh, patient, which are a little bit worrisome. It seems like I don't know why he has respiratory failure, which I don't love. Um, and if he's that hypoxemic, he's got a lot more going on than that effusion. Um, so what does the last, what are the rest of his parenchyma look like? Uh, you mean like on the ultrasound or ultrasound or x-ray? Like, yeah. Yeah. So he's got some sort of scattered, but like pulmonary edema, uh, looking okay. stuff, um, bilaterally, uh, no large consolidations that you can see on the ultrasound. It's mostly, it's just sort of a diffuse beeline pattern, but like I said, this large left-sided diffusion. Okay. And is the, the barrier to weaning is mainly the hypoxemia and not like failing SBTs due to work of breathing or, I mean, I'm guessing you're not getting SBTs because it's hypoxemia. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I think the first thing is I have to think really carefully about, uh, tapping this effusion and what my goals are going to be. I'm guessing that the gain that I'm going to get in terms of, uh, in terms of oxygenation are going to be small. Um, not zero because like, I don't have a lot of, you know, the normal situation, if you have a very large pleural effusion, but the rest of the parenchyma is kind of like, okay, is the effusion is not going to cause that big of a problem because you've got, uh, the rest of the lung to compensate for it. And in an ideal circum in a healthy functioning pulmonary circulation, you would have hypoxic, uh, vasoconstriction around the effusion where that lung is probably all atelectatic. So in a normal situation, be like, I'm not going to do anything with that. Now, in this case, this person has like no pulmonary reserve. So I think tapping, you know, it, it, empirically tapping this is a super reasonable thing to do. So that's that's the first thing. The second thing is if I think the other circumstance in which I'll drain large plural, plural effusion for respiratory benefit is really worker breathing. Because if the effusion gets long, large enough, it will actually start to flatten the diaphragm and uh, your diaphragmatic excursion will be uh, limited. And then that causes a lot of sensation of dyspnea, as you could imagine. So I think if it's causing diaphragm dysfunction, that's, you know, that's a slam dunk reason to go after it if somebody is uh, very dyspneic. So that's my sort of mental framework here. Now, also, I, I have how much fluid do you think is in there, Brian? Because obviously I can't see the the uh, pictures, but. Okay. So then the other part of the decision-making process that comes in, I have somebody on, uh, on the vent on high FiO2, um, who has the least moderate to large pleural effusion. 
should I leave a tube behind when I drain this? Uh, that's another thing to consider. And if it's like in the hundreds of cc's, it's probably not necessarily worth it. But if you think uh, it's more than that, or you want to be able to drain it more gradually, or you think the drainage is going to, you're going to have to, you're going to be back doing it again in three days, you might as well leave a pigtail behind. Um, but that's, you know, maybe one of the least intensive things about me is like a lot of times I'm like, if I'm going to go through the trouble of entering the pleural space, uh, maybe I should leave a tube there just to allow natural history of this to play out. But that's like a thing that I do and not necessarily something that everybody else does. Um, all right. So in this case, uh, and especially, you know, in this case, I don't know what's going to come out, right? This person has sort of this cryptic respiratory failure. Maybe I'm going to end up draining something that I'll, I'll be happy that I could drain uh, in a more sustained fashion. Like maybe it ends up being an empyema or something. All right, um, but back to the actual process of draining it. Um, I have a tendency, and again, this is like totally anecdotal and not something that probably anybody does uh, on a routine basis. Do you guys have micropuncture kits? Yes. Yeah. So I think these are like, and by the way, I have no conflict of interest that nobody pays me or anything, but I think these things are like a miracle. Um, yeah. And, and just terms of of being atraumatic, you know, or less I have a less lot traumatic. of love for the micropuncture kit, so. It's really hard to to not to love it, I think. Yeah. And for me, I, every every plural or peritoneal drainage uh, activity that I engage in involves a micropuncture catheter. Now that's interesting. I've I've never used one um, for a thoracentesis, though. So it's actually kind of um, so. Do you guys have kind of that standard thorapara kit that you yeah. do? Okay, yeah. so we have that too, and it's got like that giant sword in it, and I, I don't uh -huh. really, it just makes <laughs> yeah. me a little nervous. <laughs> you know, like I've never, I haven't yet had a hemothorax or no or a hemoperitoneum, but I'm not trying to like get that on my record. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> so you know, that's like eight, most of those are like eight French catheters. The micropuncture set, most of them are like four French. The, the needle is 21 gauge. It's just much smaller. I feel a lot safer. I don't, again, there's, I don't, there's never been a study that's compared this. So this is just like what Matt does and not like something that you necessarily need to take home with you. But uh, interestingly enough, even if you just use the micropuncture set, so, you know, you don't, when you use a micropuncture with the, with that thorapara kit, you can't put the catheter over the wire like you would in like a chest tube or like in a central line. So you're stuck with the catheter that you put in basically, um, unless you're putting in a pigtail. So what I do then is I'll put the micropuncture catheter in um, and uh, hook that up directly to whatever drainage device you decide you're going to use, whether that's uh, the, you know, the bag uh, and you're going to do a one way, you know, do the, the one way valve uh, hand pump technique, whether you're going to hook it up to wall suction, whether you're going to hook it up to a drainage bottle. Um, I hook it up directly to the drainage device um, and you'd think, wow, that's going to take forever to drain out. It actually probably doesn't take that much longer to drain out, even though it's half the size um, or half, you know, half the internal diameter. So that's usually my approach in these circumstances. And again, this might be something where I'm treating myself, but it, I, I just feel like the smallest poke, you know, the smallest hole I could put in someone, the better, and it'll make my chances of nicking a, a aberrant a neuro, neurovascular bundle less. I will also say that I always ultrasound the space with a um, high frequency probe with color Doppler on to make sure that there's not any like sagging vessels in before I poke. So those are the ways that I try to avoid bad things happening when I'm uh, going into a space where I can't hold pressure if something goes wrong. Um, so that's the approach I would take to this effusion. It sounds like probably a simple drainage based on the amount of fluid will be fine. But the nice thing is if you get the micropuncture in and you're draining and it starts to look purulent, you can easily wire up and put a pigtail in. So do you do you look with the ultrasound just for placement 
uh, or rather like a target, or do you do it under direct visual visualization? Like do you I, do real real time ultrasound? I only do real time ultrasound if it's a really small pocket, and then you say, "Why am I doing a tap on a small pocket?" It's, if I'm doing it for diagnostic purposes, I'll probably do that. Gotcha. gotcha. Um, also, if there's you know, if the guide wire doesn't feel great when it goes in, let's see that either on the micropuncture or on the pigtail, then I'll uh, get a sterile probe cover and at least look at the position of the guide wire in the pleural space uh, before dilating. Um, and that's something just to add, add a little bit of reassurance and make sure that I'm in the place where I want to be. I think it's totally reasonable to do dynamic guidance. It's just a little bit cumbersome. Uh, I think personally, it makes it a little harder to make sure that you're appro- on the appropriate uh you have the appropriate orientation uh, with regards to the top of the rib. Um, when I learned how to do thoras and paras, I learned uh, with interventional radiology uh, when I was a resident, and they did everything dynamic, and nothing ever went wrong, but also it kind of felt like I never knew I, where I was in the rib space. So that's kind of why I have overall shied away from it a little bit. Okay. So the good news is you have a resident or maybe a fellow with you who you trust, who's fairly experienced and says he feels comfortable doing thoracentesis. Uh, and so you let him do the procedure while you, you know, kind of go tend to some other things nearby. You're, you know, he's not completely on his own, but not directly supervised. And you come back after a few minutes to check on his progress. And he says, well, I'm, I'm having a hard time here. I, I, I easily go in and hit the, hit the rib. I feel the rib and I go to walk up over the rib and I can feel the top of the rib and the, the needle slipped over top very easily uh, and into where the fluid pocket should be, but I'm not getting any fluid back. Hmm. Um, how, how many times do you, how many times will you try to do a thoracentesis before you sort of throw up your hands and say, all right, enough is enough? Yeah, it depends on how desperate I am for the fluid. If I think it's infected and needs to be drained, I'll, I, I'll probably try uh try something, try a few more times, but the, the catch is it's, it's like a failed airway. You don't want to try the same thing that you were unsuccessful with the first time. So I think this is the time to maybe get the probe, look for, look dynamically make sure you are where you think you are. Make sure we're not actually doing accidentally doing a kidney biopsy or a spleen biopsy or something. Um, you know, I think those kind of things are, are worth just double checking. It's hard. I think as you, as both of you probably very well, I'm sure you both know very well since you you also train others is it's, it's always a little unnerving to have somebody, um, with a needle deep into a patient and you can't feel what they feel, you know, and this is one of those circumstances where I think mm-hmm. if they've tried, if they've tried, you know, twice, I, I think it's, you know, you know, for a, for a pleural or a peritoneal drainage, that's enough. And I think somebody more, the, the most experienced person needs to try if it's still necessary at that point. Now, if I get in, go into the same space, it looks like I have the same, the same, uh, target that I was hope, hoping to see and I, I can't drain it for some reason. I, I, I'm not sure that I've been in that specific circumstance. It's usually a technical issue. Like I wasn't where I thought I initially was, you know, I'm a little bit, uh, malpositioned. Uh, but knowing already that this person's poked around, you know, they probably told me they poked around twice, but in reality it may have been more times than that. Cause you know, we, we all have a little bit of tunnel vision and we lose track when we're trying to complete a procedure. Then I, I'm going to be watching this person a little bit more carefully after to make sure that we didn't, uh, you know, cause any sort of trauma. Sure. All right. So you, you put the probe on and uh, you say, you know, try again, let's see where we are here. And you can see the tip of the needle and it looks like it's going into the fluid space and, and, and suddenly he's able to aspirate fluid uh, and it comes out and it's pretty bloody. Um, at first it looks like it's 
pretty much just blood. But then you can see it, it is sort of layering out in the syringe, and it does look like there's some some pleural fluid mixed in. Um, but it's it's pretty bloody. What do you do next? Uh, well, I take a couple of deep breaths uh, at first um, because this is you know anytime this happens, even if you're like, oh, this is probably old, or you know, with the layering, I don't know, this might might have been in there. Maybe that's why this was persisting despite diuresis. It's a little hard to say, but. Uh, at this point, I think it's a good time to, um, well, number one, I think you can send a hematocrit, for whatever it's worth, you could send a hematocrit on that fluid, but with, with all that pleural fluid in there, it's probably not going to be all that impressive uh, since you said it kind of cleared a little bit. Um, the next thing is, I think, you're just watching watching this patient very carefully. So I, I would re-ultrasound the space after the drainage was done, um, see if there's fluid reaccumulating. I would look at the lung, make sure the lung expanded, make sure there's, you know, the, the, um, lung sliding is present. And, uh, and also, you know, re look really close down at towards the diaphragm and, and sort of posteriorly as, you know, lateral on the diaphragm laterally and also posteriorly to make sure I'm not, you know, accumulating, starting to accumulate blood or, or fluid or, 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 uh, you know, God forbid I you know, the diaphragm was punctured or something like that. So just things to kind of look out for initially. And then frankly, at that point, I'm probably watching that patient like a hawk, uh, for a while. If there's any, even a hint of instability, um, re, re ultrasounding the chest, going for a CTA, thinking about embolization, um, would be the next steps in the process. Is this a good reason to consider leaving a drain so you can monitor the output, I suppose? Yeah, I think that's the, you know, that's the other thing that I almost brought up. Uh, I think it, I think there's it's definitely a justification for it, and especially if you're if you're using a catheter, which you know, it, you know, if you're gonna fall into the fall in love with the micropuncture as I have, and you can simply just stick a pigtail wire in there and, and leave a pigtail behind, I think that's a really reasonable thing to do. You can keep an eye on it. You just might have to have you know, it's only the ones that we have are 14 French. Uh, you might just have to have a have somebody flushing it periodically to make sure, because if it clots and you're not going to know, right? So that's, um, I think that's that's one I'd probably be flushing if I was worried about uh, blood developing in the space. I think anytime that you're worried that you there was a traumatic uh, event, whether it was a you know, an injury to the lung or or uh, injury to a vascular structure, it's reasonable to leave a, a pigtail or or even a large bore behind, depending on your you know the local practices. So. Would you, I guess, let's back up. You you first start to get fluid back and you've got your little 5ml syringe on there or whatever. And it's pretty much just blood looks like coming back. Um, does that give you pause? Do you keep aspirating or do you say, yeah, I, I think maybe we may be in a vascular structure or um, you know something else and we need to stop? Or how, how, how far do you go to, to prove to yourself it's not it's not blood that you're aspirating, but bloody fluid? I'd feel better to see it, the evolution of it over time, kind of like we did. I don't know if that's the right answer or the wrong answer, but that's that's what I would do in that circumstance. Um, so I, I would probably continue to drain um, just to you know establish the natural history of what's what's going to happen here as as much as possible. Um, sometimes you end up, you know, either hopefully prospectively, but sometimes retrospectively, you end up getting a history like, oh yeah, this person had a big fall you know, two weeks ago, or, you know, they get Thor or they get Thor's on the side all the time. And then you're like, okay, maybe I'm not so surprised to see blood and blood in this area. Mm -hmm. Um, the, the other thing that I will say is, uh, 
and then usually it'll be like darker, right? It won't look like, and it'll still be mixed with pleural fluid, so it'll be free flowing, but um, it'll be darker. The other thing to consider, like I have this unexplained pleural effusion in this person, is 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 it malignant? Um, you know, usually malignant effusions don't start like looking like frank blood and then clearing, but sometimes they just look like just you know medium red uh, all the way through or dark red all the way through, and you're like, I don't know what's going on in there, and then you have to wait wait for the cytology to come back to give you the answer. So there's a lot of things. I've done a lot of pleural drainage uh, procedures over the, the last couple of years, and I've had a lot of times where I've held my breath when I saw what fluid came out, and I've just been fortunate that it's there's always been an alternative explanation. Uh, you know, it's it's been due to prior trauma, prior drainage, malignancy, um, something else, you know, or, or somebody that's like maybe, you know, like a cirrhosis patient who's very severely uh, coagulopathic, which why am I sticking a needle in the space? Good question. Um, but that, that they, they sometimes will have, you know, sort of sanguineous looking fluid to start with. And you're like, I don't know if I did that or if that's what's going on, but it's a good time to circle back, check your coags or a tag if you have it and make sure everything is uh, optimized as best you can. Okay. So the, the reason I mentioned the left side is I feel like for me, at least where I am, um, it's it's more unusual to see an infusion on the on the left than on the right. Um, and the other thing that concerns me, especially with like you said, using the the big uh, safety centesis needle, that big long thing, is if you've got a small person, you know the the heart's also on the left side of the chest. Yeah. What are the, what's what's the risk of hitting the heart accidentally? You got blood coming back. How how do you know that you haven't like? punctured the cardiac the pericardium that's that's a really good question i I, i'm not sure that you would know that uh which is another scary thing the nice thing is you can usually see if you know in the in the in the age of ultrasound guidance you would hope that that would be pretty unusual because you should if i can see the heart within you know six to eight centimeters of the pocket i'm going into i'm like okay maybe i need to see if i can redirect this a little bit in a different direction um i'm sure this has happened before uh i've not heard of it happening to anybody that I know, but I'm sure, you know, that's not something people like necessarily want to brag about. Um, I'm sure that it's, it's something that there, there's a risk of it. That's just another reason why I think using the smallest needle to get into the space is reasonable. Um, especially consider, you know, in this case, we're doing a therapeutic thoracentesis. So there's a little bit of a difference. Okay. We want to be able to drain something out. We have to put a slightly longer catheter in the micropuncture catheter is like 10 centimeters. So, um, even a really, really small person, if you're going to get there, you know, this is all where the sort of needle control comes into play. So not only, um, having a sense of where you are, but also really making sure that you're, you have proximal control of the needle on the patient. So, and what I mean by that is your hand really should be anchored on the needle on, on, on the patient themselves. So if they, you know, all of a sudden move on unexpectedly, you don't accidentally do a myocardial biopsy. Um, I think that's something that we should be doing on all of our procedures, big and small. You know, I think that's that's one way to avoid it. The other is just always to use the smallest catheter possible. So when I do diagnostic uh, paracentesis, if I can get away, if the soft Q or the sub Q tissue is uh, not too uh, large for me to use a twenty gauge angiocath, I'll use a twenty gauge angiocath uh, to get into the space. And then I'm like, at best, I'll have like two centimeters into the peritoneal cavity. Like I'm not, and again, I'm not going for two liters out. I'm going for 50 cc's. And that's uh, another way to try to minimize trauma is not only use the smallest diameter thing, but the smallest length thing that you can get away with to accomplish uh, the goal in mind. But I do see people use 
those giant sword kits for like diagnostic procedures all the time. I'm like, I'm just not sure that makes sense in that, in that circumstance. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, I think I use that for paracentesis, even though I don't plan to leave the catheter in place, but I'm also typically draining several liters of ascites off. Uh, and so it's a little easier to put a catheter in, hook it up to a big drainage bottle and leave it for a few hours and then pull it rather than stand there and hand pump, you know, yeah. four or five, four or five liters of ascites out. Yeah, that would be insane. I, I think yeah. you'd have you'd have the best trained forearms in the unit, but you probably wouldn't want to come back to work the next day. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I did one time uh, walk in uh, on a, a one of our surgery residents was doing one, and uh, he uh, he said, do, "Do you have any tips here? I'm just this is killing me." And he's literally just pumping out sixty cc's <laughs> at a time. And I was like, "Oh, brother, yeah, hold on, I'll, I'll be right back." And you know, I came, went and got one of those big bottles and. He was like, oh my gosh, thank you so much. I'm glad that you happened to walk by. I, I would have been here all day pulling this stuff out. It's like those old uh, ice cream makers that you had to crank. Oh, yeah. yeah. Which yeah, really yeah. are mostly effective if you have some small children you can make crank. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I think I was that small child when I was a kid. My grandparents were like, here, this is fun. Turn this. <laughs> now, we, now we have technology. Yeah. Yeah, might yeah. as well let, let it work for you. And with that in mind, you know, I, again, I... To, to really just totally beat this point uh, to a pulp is I I still use a micropuncture for therapeutic thoracin, or, uh, paracentesis as well. You'd be like, really, you're going to try to drain all this? Thing? Again, it's only a little bit slower than using an eight French catheter. Um, and then you, know, you can just leave that micropuncture catheter in place. The catch is you got to be a little bit more vigilant in holding it because it's not, you know, designed to just, you know, sit there without without some sort of securement. Um, but I use it in that case too. And again, maybe this is way too paranoid of me, but, um, this is how I justify, um, staying out of trouble, uh, to my, to my, uh, my brain here. Cause a lot of times in our, you know, we have like a dedicated liver ICU within our medical ICU. And so we have like the most, whatever the most severe, uh, coagulopathic derangement you could have is in that unit. And they often need some sort of drainage procedure. And I'm just trying to ward off evil spirits as much as possible. Now, in that case, I'm still looking, you know, with, with the, for a paracentesis, I'm still looking with ultrasound for vessels and usually looking in two planes, like looking at, you know, looking in one view and then taking a 90 degree view to make sure you don't see anything with color Doppler. Because I think the vast majority, and I'll be interested to hear what you guys have to say about this. I think the vast majority of bleeding complications from procedures are more anatomic and structural than they are related to coagulopathy. So I think and that's, that's the way that I approach these things. So I say, okay, if I can keep my needle out of harm's way, then my chances of having a bad outcome are less. Yeah, I think so. I think uh, you're right. The, it's not necessarily coagulopathy. Even in patients who are somewhat coagulopathic, uh, I think you're right. It's, it's mostly the physical trauma of hitting a blood vessel. I agree. Yeah, usually it is specifically hitting a vessel in the chest or abdominal wall. It, of all the other things that you would worry about, usually that's what it is. Yeah, for sure. And then if, even if you think about uh, about central lines, I mean, I think carotid punctures are unusual, but not not rare. Um, but the other thing that happen, that I see happen a lot is when somebody, if, if you are stitching your catheters, and I see some people, sometimes the bleeding comes from accidentally stitching the external jugular vein uh, when trying to secure the catheter, and that can bleed like for days. Um, so that's another case of just kind of being aware of the anatomy where you are. Yeah, that's yeah. a good point. I usually tell people if you do your sutures in and they just never seem to stop bleeding, like every time you wiggle them, they ooze, you, yeah. you probably nailed some tiny little vessel. For sure. 
Um, all right. Well, that this has been good talk of not only some complications, but also a little insight into some procedural skills as well. Um, you know, we could probably keep going with more and more cases, but uh, I think in the interest of time, we cut it off here. And uh, maybe we can sweet talk you into coming back at some other point and doing some more of these. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a neat format and uh, gives us a la- uh, a launch pad, but then we can kind of go with it in whatever direction feels good to us. Cool. Um, Brandon, you have any other final thoughts? No, I think it's been good. I guess just maybe the final thing might be, um, Matt, what, do you have a general philosophy about complications. And I guess by that, I mean, I I think a lot of people, if they think about complications as a general category, um, the only real thought they have is that they, um, they feel guilty when they happen. In other words, some part of you thinks it's, it's your fault and therefore you did something wrong. Um, and I don't know that there may be truth to that, but I think it's also, um, that might be taking too much responsibility. What's your take on it? Because I mean, these things do happen. That is such a good question. And that's something I do think about a lot because I, in our setting, um, you know, I mainly work at night. Uh, so I, 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 uh, supervise a large number of procedures. Um, and then in the daytime, we actually have a procedure service that our team staffs and I work that a lot too. So I'm like exposed to all the potential things that could go wrong all the time. And you're right that people generally take it personally or feel bad when, when something happens. And there's a couple, and and then I think with a, a culture that can reinforce that in a negative way is sort of like the downside of the M M&M and M culture, where you say, okay, well we had a we had a complication from this procedure, so this procedure should not be done anymore, or it should only be done in this circumstance, or you know, like things get uh, tunneled down so far that it becomes difficult to practically do anything. Or if you work in a uh, sort of a putative environment where every complication is viewed as a individual failure, it's really hard to thrive in that situation. The reality is uh, we are doing invasive procedures to really sick people every day. The vast majority of the time, nothing bad happens. Um, But to eliminate risk 100% is just not possible. It's not possible in our decision-making around procedures and then the other thing is we never see the complications that result from not doing a procedure. I mean, I shouldn't say never, but almost never, because you say, well, you know, maybe that patient, it would have been safer for that patient to have a diagnostic ther- uh, thoracentesis, um, but we didn't do it. And then you don't see like five days later, they died from septic shock from unknowns, you know, from lack of source control. So it's, you know, understanding and tolerating risk in the ICU is one of the most difficult things we do. It's definitely way harder than the technical aspects of the procedure themselves. So when a bad outcome, when a bad outcome happens, I think there's a couple things to think about. Is there a way that I could have been better prepared to do that procedure? A lot of the times the answer is yes. One uh, example that I'll give particularly is if you ever notice that the procedure that happens within 45 minutes of shift change, like you're at the end of your day, always is harder than the other ones. And I think it's just, you know, your, your mental, uh, energy is expended and you're, you're kind of working on fumes at this point. And you say, if this is not an emergency, maybe I should just let the next person that's coming on do it. If it's an emergency, you do what you have to do, but try to stay as mentally vigilant as you can. Um, there's always things that we could do to be better set up. Um, especially if you think about like airway management, like, could I position this patient differently or something like that? Or should I have, you know, resuscitated them differently or more aggressively or anticipated a bad outcome. Those are things that I think it's reasonable to, to dwell on. 
Now, when you say, well, I had a really unexpected complication from this procedure and I can't quite figure out why, but now I feel terrible. I think it's normal uh, human nature to feel bad if you did something to somebody that and a bad outcome resulted. Um, but to dwell on it is going to take away, first of all, it's going to place an undue amount of blame on yourself, which I don't think is productive in any way, shape or form. If you find a way to learn from it, even learn from coping through it, I think that's really, really helpful. When I was a, uh, intern, when I was an intern, it was like my 10th or 11th central line. And I, uh, a combination of patient factors and my inexperience led to a tension pneumothorax um, and, and the patient actually briefly arrested from it. And at that point in my life, I thought I wanted to do critical care. And that experience was so jarring to me, I considered walking away from it. I was like, that hurt so much that I'm not sure that I'm in a position to do this. But, you know, the next day I went back and I did another procedure uh, on somebody just because I kind of felt like I needed to go through the process and, and learn from what I could have done better. And obviously, I never stopped doing procedures since that point. Um, it's it's I think learners are very vulnerable uh, to uh, experiencing complications, especially when they feel like it was their fault. Um, and as you know, the three of us who supervise others, it's really important for us to make sure that we're uh, appropriately emotionally supportive to them through that process and also make sure they understand that this doesn't mean that they're a, a bad physician, a bad APP, uh, or somebody who is, you know, procedurally inept. They just need, uh, there's just maybe some uh, mental preparation and skill acquisition that needs to be improved upon. Yeah, those are those are great points. I, I definitely agree. There, there's a fine line between what I think we ought to do, which is when something bad happens to consider, you know, what you might learn from it. Um, but at the same time, sometimes, sometimes there's nothing to learn. Right. Um, and there is, there is kind of that tendency to assume that, you know, errors of commission are, are worse than the errors of omission. And, um, yeah, you're right. I think there's kind of a culture that's developed in the, the QI world of assuming that things should be changed when, when complications occur. And I mean, you know, you, you probably should err a little bit in that direction um, because you should, you should look, you know, you should evaluate to see what should change. But really, I mean, the only way that a complication should change your practice is if it, if it alters your understanding of the, the balance of risk or your paradigm for, for what you're doing. So you, you know that when you do a subclavian central line, there's a risk of pneumothorax. That's not a new, and if you're doing it, it must be because you've decided that that risk is is worth it for all the benefits. Um, so you you do a line and you get a pneumothorax. Is it just that that kind of theoretical risk became real to you, and that sort of psychologically means something, or is the, did it did you learn something here? Like you know, have you had three of these in the last month? And that, that's probably a higher risk than it should right. be. So you're doing something wrong. Or, I mean, the best example would be a complication that is totally out of left field that you never even heard of happening. All right, th there's, some, there's some, you know, wild card here. You're doing something that other people are not doing or, you know, you're, there's something weird about your equipment or, or something. You know, clearly there should be something learned here. Um, but, I mean... Some things just happen, and and the the funny thing is, if you have kind of an expected complication, and then you change something, all you could actually do is make things worse. <laughs> I mean, yeah. if you if you have an optimal you know practice pattern, and then something expected ha happens, and then you you change something, the next time, I mean, you've actually just degraded your your practice in some way. 
Um, and that's sort of a, that's a subtle thing, I think. You're absolutely right. I think one thing that we lose track of and the way that we take care of patients in the ICU period, but especially in procedures is, you know, the process is, is what we need to focus on. The outcomes are not necessarily always in our control, but if you can say I did everything to the best of my ability, to the best of uh, what's, you know, medically appropriate, uh, you know, I don't, I'm not sure what, what's worth dwelling on about that. Like you said, you could end up deviating your practice in a way that's actually harmful. The best thing I think we can do is really, you know, it's it, it really takes a lot of thought to make sure that this procedure is needed because a lot of times we're like, okay, there's an infusion, I'm going to drain it because it's there and it, I want it to go away. I want to make it normal. Like if you have a goal in mind and you can justify why you're doing the procedure and something goes wrong and it wasn't something you can optimize some other way, it's not worth dwelling on. I, again, we, we take care of the sickest people in the hospital and, uh, and we are doing invasive procedures. And the combination of those two things mean that there's going to be some bad outcomes. Yeah. And certainly sometimes a complication makes you step back and, and be more honest and acknowledge that maybe whatever you did didn't need to be done. For some reason, you were being overly aggressive. You you wanted to do the thing or try it out, or you had a trainee who wanted to learn something or or whatever. And I think the other thing is, I mean, if you're honestly trying to to optimize your practice and learn from mistakes, you can learn just as much and, and really in higher volume usually by looking at near misses, yes. things that didn't actually happen, but they they could have. And you can see how they, you know, there was a there was a there was a bobble or a stumble and then it ended up OK. But if, if you really look for those things, you're going to have 20 of those for every time things actually go wrong. And then you can correct the issue before something actually does happen. Yeah, that's a great point. I, and and the, you're right. Those op, those opportunities are so plentiful that we need to uh, highlight them when they come up. Yeah. And don't you think, I, I mean, I feel like we do a really, in general, bad job of that because I think we go, whew, whew, thank goodness something that could have been bad. And we yeah. just sort of move on. Right. Um you know, like you were, you were saying about, um, important how we correct people. I had a earlier on in my career, I had a procedure that was sort of semi-emergent, um, that was done and ended up in a bad outcome, not directly because of the procedure, but the patient was very sick anyway. And afterwards I talked to, was talking to my attending and I said, you know, Hey, do you think, do you think my, my, the complication. Do you think that contributed to this poor outcome? And I was really, I was asking, sort of hoping that he would go and say, no, you know, it would, it's no big deal. And he was like, oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, ah, really? Are you kidding me? Like, I mean, I was very paranoid and he said, but walk me through what you did. And I did. And he said, yeah, you did everything right. Right. Sometimes stuff happens and that's, you're going to have stuff that goes wrong. And did this contribute to the poor outcome? Yeah, probably. Um, but did you do something wrong? No, you know, you did everything right. And there's some things to learn from that. And, and I think about that now, every time I do that procedure and, uh, you know, I think about the things that I could have done better and I feel like I do do them better. Well, you know, it's funny. I almost feel like as you get better at, and we're using procedures as an example, but th this applies to any sort of skill. Um, the more skilled you get at things, the better you get at compensating or recovering or fixing issues. And yeah. that almost makes it less likely that you will address the thing that caused them. 
In other words, you go to yeah. do a procedure and it gets it gets a little nutty. Um, you make you know you make several attempts at it. There, there's a little bit of issue here. You you something goes wrong, but then quote it works out and you <laughs> manage to make it happen because you have a, a big toolbox and that's good. You should have all that, but. Maybe the the thing to do is as you walk out of that room, you don't just um, you know erase your memory and say, "Well, I, I, I nailed it." You say, "You know, how can I do it differently in the future so those things don't happen?" You know, right. this is that learning moment because you know after seven times that this scenario plays out, on the eighth time, I won't be able to make it work or correct or whatever. And even those other six times, they would be better better served if you didn't have to like, you know, wing it and demonstrate your prowess or whatever. I mean, it's better if you can, you know, if everything goes smoothly, because, you know, that that means that it was it was an optimal process. Yeah, I, I like that framing, too. And I think one one uh, one place where I see this play out a lot is in like ultrasound guided vascular access. It's really not that hard to hit most IJs, uh, even if you have no idea where your needle is most of the time. But then you see um, you see the difference in people who develop ultrasound, precise ultrasound uh, needle uh, tracking techniques and those who don't. And sometimes ones who don't have the patient uh, in such Trendelenburg that they're basically hanging from the ceiling by their feet and, you know, they're doing like breath holds on the ventilator and like, you know, it's like all kinds of things where like, if we just worked on the primary skill here, you would probably save yourself a lot of those trouble, the need for troubleshooting in a lot of those circumstances. Yeah, and to take it in a, you know, like Brandon said, we're, we're focusing on procedures, but it does apply to everything at a very basic level, right? I teach students, you know, when you when you do a history, when you take a history, when you do a review of systems, when you do an exam, you do it the same way every time. And, you know, they do these introductory cases where they skip to step 12, and they're like, oh, it's pneumonia. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah, it is pneumonia, but... You didn't, you skipped all the steps. And it's like my kids when they do their math, right? And they're like, they, they want to just, just do it in their head. That's fine for the easy stuff. But then when you get to the hard stuff, you don't have that framework to fall back on. And so I think, like you said, when you, when you work on the basic skills, the fundamentals of stuff, whether it's procedural skills or diagnostic skills or whatever, you, you have that when, like Brandon said, that eighth case comes along that you don't have the tools to pull it out, you've avoided it because you've gone through the steps every time. Yeah, it's uh it's it's good for this patient if you're, you know, it's relatively easy and you're able to make it work, but it's bad for the next one because you right. didn't learn anything out of it. Right. It's you know, it's bad for this guy if it it was actually it challenged you challenged you in some way. Um, but for the next person it's it's better because you learn from this one. Right. Um, if that makes sense. Yeah, no. Yeah. Absolutely. All right, guys. Why don't we call it quits there? Um, thanks, as always, for joining us, Matt. It's always a pleasure to have you. Likewise, guys. Thanks for having me again. All right, everyone. Um, remember, the views in this podcast are, are really those of us, the hosts alone, not our employers or anybody else. Um, and this material really is just meant to be educational, um, but shouldn't be used as a sole guide for your clinical practice. And we'll see you next time. <laughs>